With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Eric. So the episode today is an interesting one. It's about the 1940 Barrel Girl murder at Fort Snelling. So enjoy the episode, and by the way, I've got permission from my guests, the Adlers, to post some photographs on the Minnesota's most notorious Facebook page. So head on over there if you're interested in seeing those. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I am delighted to be here today in person with Susie and Todd Adler, or Todd and Susie Adler. Do you have a preference? Or? Uh, we usually go with Susie first. <laughs> well, I got it right then. Uh, the keepers of knowledge for all things Fort Snelling, uh, especially the Upper Post. And they're here to talk about a brutal and mysterious murder that happened at the Upper Post in the 1940s. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So first, um, I'd love it if you could explain your individual areas of expertise as it relates to Fort Snelling. Uh, I tend to study Fort Snelling from about 1880 to 1946, which is when the post was closed as an active army base. And so uh, it's one of those unstudied areas. A lot of people have looked at the, the early origins of Fort Snelling from 1819 through 1870. And a lot of people look at it from, uh, from the Civil War point of view, but no one's really uh, delved into the uh, late Indian Wars up through World War II. And Susie? And I look at it from the viewpoint of World War I. So I am mostly interested in Fort Snelling in terms of the the intersection of Fort Snelling and World War I, which is when Fort Snelling had a officer's training camp, as well as was declared a general hospital, which meant the entire post became a hospital for returning and recuperating soldiers from World War I. As I, it kind of would make sense, World War I is more of my focus, and this just happens to be where it intersects with Todd's area of interest. So I'd like to start by asking you about the physical fort itself. People can go to historic Fort Snelling here in Minnesota, pay the admission, see what the, the fort looked like back in the 1820s. But for a lot of people, the upper post is a little bit more mysterious. I mean, there aren't tours that you can go on on a regular basis, per se, although we will talk a little bit about some tours that, that uh, you guys offer occasionally on your own, which which is spectacular. But 
Could you could you talk about the upper post? What what it consists of? Um, where it is in relation to the the lower post? Well, the upper post uh, really got started after uh, the Civil War because they wanted to make the base big enough that it could take a uh, regiment of soldiers plus a battery of artillery and some cavalry. So they uh, kind of expanded beyond the uh, original fort walls and uh, they built the stuff, uh, the buildings that went along the upper bluffs. And the bluffs are a little higher there than they are at the historic fort, so that's why they call it the, the upper post. And then they call the uh, historic fort the lower post. The bluffs are a little lower down by the Mississippi and confluence of the Minnesota rivers. So I started a big uh, building program uh, right about 1878, and uh, they kept expanding through the Spanish-American War, through the World War One, and through World War Two. So, and it got to be a uh, quite a big post. It would have about uh, 300 buildings at one point, and uh, roughly 3,000 soldiers, plus uh, civilian contractors that worked there on the post. And, so it got to be quite the to-do. Uh, if you drive through the area today, there's only about 50 buildings left. But uh, if you look at anything that is airport land there today, that was all upper post, every square inch of it. Hmm. So, so if somebody was to, to drive through it now, today, what, what would they see? What would they be able to visit? Uh, currently, there are, there are a few warehouses left. There are some uh, NCO houses, and uh, there is about half of Barracks Row. So Barracks Row and Officers Row used to go down a street called Taylor Avenue. And that went uh, from where the headquarters building is all the way down to uh, the airport road. So if you take the road into the airport, that's where Barracks Row and Officers Row ended back in the day. But all that got torn out in the 1950s and 1960s for airport expansion. Interesting. So currently the headquarters type of buildings are still there on Taylor Avenue. So you have the headquarters building, you have the band barracks, um, Hospital. The hospital, a steward's quarter, as well as the gymnasium or, or, or PX um, are still on that street, as well as then the, the barracks. Um, yeah, was it? there's some things behind the headquarters still. Uh, there is the telephone exchange, the uh, post prison, uh, fire station, and the dead house. And dead house right behind the hospital. So if things didn't turn out well in the hospital, you went a few feet over to the dead house. I'm told there's even a tunnel going from the hospital over the dead house. I haven't seen that yet. But. <laughs> so those buildings, as well as the barracks and officers row, are, are empty. They've been, um, what do they call that? Mothballed. Mothballed, where there's, it allows um, circulation in there for the air so things don't get too moldy, but, and the roofs have been shored up. So for the most part, those are um, stable again but none of those buildings are currently being used. Also in the upper post area, there are a series of warehouses that, and former stables that the VA owns, and those have seen um, restoration. Those have been restored. So yes. now a lot of the buildings are uh, homes for uh, veterans. So if you're a veteran, you can go there, you can stay for a month, or you can stay for the rest of your life if you want to. And Happy to have you. And they got 58 apartments there. Oh, very cool. Yep. And even a couple um, family dwellings, which I think is nice. So, And then the warehouse has been turned into office space for the VA. And at first, people weren't too thrilled about getting a new office over on the upper post. In some musty old building. <laughs> 
But then they saw how wonderful it was and what they've done to restore. The buildings retained the character from the outside, definitely. And on the inside, they utilize as much as possible. So within the, you'll, the buildings, you'll still see some of the original you know, graphics that they put up a room number and just stencil it onto the wall. That's still there. Those types of things are still prevalent. There used to be a uh, meat locker in the uh, basement of one of the buildings, so they've kept the uh, the sliding steel doors from the meat locker and the hooks and kept a lot of those original architectural details. So now people are clamoring to get office space in the old warehouse because they now they've seen it, they're like, wow, this is fantastic. Right. It's like going living in a loft building or working in a loft building in uh, downtown Minneapolis. Oh, that's great. And then another building that's still there is the old drill house, which was built in... It was like 1909? 1907, I want to say. 1907. Um, and that's owned by the Boy Scouts of America, or whatever their new name is. <laughs> and uh, they also have built a, um, a modern-looking building next to it, which is a leadership training facility. So they, they have the old building, which they kept in, in full character on the outside is exactly as it was. Um, with some modernization inside, and then built a building next next to it. So I think most of the traffic that goes to the upper post is related to the, the scouts and the activities that are going on at that leadership training center. Interesting. So the, the events that you're about to tell us about now are at a part that no longer exists, right? Uh, that is correct. Most of the, the events that... Um, Brown Mary Jane happened um, in areas that are now taken over by the airport, but she would have also been in the area that we that are still physically there. So the barracks that she would have walked by, the three that are remaining, she would have walked by you know, the remainder of them. But um, she would have walked by those barracks. She would have um, attended events in the on the parade grounds. She would have gone to the gymnasium, which was the PX. Um, so she would have walked right by the hospital. I don't know for sure she was born in that hospital, but she was born on the base in 1926. So what is left is still very much a part of what she would have seen and participated in. So if you don't mind, let's, let's get into the details of how Mary Jane disappeared. Can you talk about that fateful day, where she was going, and what we know about what happened to her? Sure. Um, let me back up a little bit. Um, so Mary Jane Massey was the daughter of a sergeant, William Massey, who was part of the, never write this down, the 3rd Third Infantry, Infantry Regiment. 3rd Infantry Regiment. He was a career soldier. Um, this is during the interwar years. And Fort Snelling at that point was kind of the country club of the army. This was a really good place to be stationed. It was a, it was a plum of an assignment. If you got stationed to Fort Snelling, you would arrive because it had a lot of amenities there, like uh, it had its own uh, hunting grounds and uh, polo, hockey, swimming pools for both the enlisted men and the officers, uh, tennis courts. So uh, you got a good assignment if you've got Fort Snelling in the uh, 1920s and 1930s. A movie theater too, right? It yes. Had a movie theater with air conditioning. Wow. And the only building on the post that was air conditioned. Huh. So anyway, so Mary Jane was born at the post in August of 1926. And since her father was a non-commissioned officer, he lived on the post um, with his wife. Um, the 3rd Infantry Regiment was often 
um, posted around the country, but they could, Mary Jane and her mother Golda stayed here, even when he was on assignment. Um, he was in Georgia on assignment in, in April of 1940. Um, so he's actually not counted in the U.S. Census in, as being in Minnesota, but Mary Jane and Golda still are. So Mary Jane had a fun childhood. She was described as being very outgoing. She loved to wander all over the post. Um, as part of school, she was in Homecroft School, which is over in St. Paul. So the Post children went over there for elementary education. And um, like I said, she really was well known all over the Post. And on July 13th, 1940, Mary Jane had been at home. It was a really hot day. Mary Jane had was 14 years old, had been home and working in her garden. Um, she occasionally would grow vegetables to sell to other NCO wives. But she was working in her garden and decided that, oh, this is just too hot. There wasn't anything really to pick. So she asked for permission to go to watch the swimmers. And her mother said yes. And so um, about 4.30 in the afternoon, she went to the pool. And um, with the caveat, you know, be home for dinner. <laughs> and um, she did not return. So she was last seen by the swimming pool um, about, again, about two blocks from her home at about 6.30 p.m. that night. And the father who had, had worked the early shift had come home around 2.30 and had gone to take a nap. And so around that time frame, you know, he went and got some dog food for the dog. And the mother had decided she was just going to make scrambled eggs for dinner because it was just too hot to cook anything. Sure. And so it's now getting to be seven o'clock and Mary Jane's not home and they're kind of pissed. <laughs> right. So, because this was not the first time she had been late, but she'd never not shown up. And so they quickly made dinner for themselves. The mother um, stayed home. The father went down to the pool to look for her, asked if anybody had seen her. Some people had seen her and came back about half an hour later and said, yeah, she's not there. I don't know where she is. At which point they started looking further. Mary Jane, um, like I said, had loved to wander around the post, and specifically she often went down a little ravine by the Mendota Bridge to pick wildflowers, and so they focused their search on that ravine, and at this point the, the father had told his commander that his daughter was missing, and so he got several men of the unit to come help them to search, and they went through and searched, still didn't find her, then again more and more people soldiers joined the search as well and I think it was like 2 30 in the morning when they finally just like like oh we can't find her um and the next morning they organized a you know a much larger search they had several people there from the CMTC CMTC which was the yep. civilian military training camps those were uh camps that the army held at various posts around the country during the summer. So if you were a young man or a teenager and you want to get a little bit of military training, you go to these camps for 30 days and they would teach you how to be a soldier, how to fire a rifle, shoot off artillery, uh, things of that sort. And if you went through uh, four years of that training, then you got a uh, commission as a second lieutenant in the Army Reserves. So I had this whole camp of CMT, CMTC students at Fort Snelling at this time, and uh, they called all of them out to uh, help search too. Wow. Now this happened to be an incredibly hot week. 
it's also during the Minneapolis Aquatennial. So if you just recall, most Aquatennials are unbearably hot. Uh, the temperature reached 100 degrees every day that week. So they, like I said, they, they searched, they organized the CMTC. So hundreds of soldiers are searching. They focused their area on the, on the ravine and around. And at first they were looking for, well, maybe she fell and got hurt. You know, she must be out there somewhere. One of the things that they noted was that she never went anywhere without the dog and the dog came home and she did not. Hmm. So, um, and again, looking for her, you know, several times during that week, it was all done within the base because the army protocol is you tell your commanding officer, he tells his commanding officer, eventually the, you know, the commandant of the bit of the post would be responsible. Um, the po the, Fort Snelling Army Post is federal property. And so they did not call the police in St. Paul until Friday. And only with the permission of the, um, of the post commander. So how much time has elapsed between when she went she missing? Was, she went missing on Saturday. Um, the last of the major big searches were Wednesday. And um, at that point, nothing more was really being done at the post, which is when... William got permission to talk to St. Paul. Did, did the Post have like a team of investigators qualified for something For like something this? like this? No. The, the explanation was she ran off. The comments, there, it's common that girls run off. And just on a side note, I looked through a lot of newspapers around that time frame because I thought this would have been the largest story. Well, it turns out that there are a lot of young women that are murdered around the country in the late 30s and early 40s. And most of them started out with, they ran off, oh, then we found a body. It was just very dismissive. You know, she must have run away. Did you check with your family down in Texas? Well, she doesn't know my family down in Texas. She's only been up here. She wouldn't have gone to te Texas. Well, did you check with your family in Kansas? Well, no, because she doesn't know the family in Kansas. You know, she would have, she would not have gone anywhere. And all her things were still in her room. Yes, everything was still in her room exactly as um, she was. She liked to have things very neat, <laughs> and things were on her dresser in exactly the order that she always had them. So she didn't take anything with her. She did not run away. And the mother was insistent that she did not run away. The father was insistent that she did not run away. But that seemed to be the most expedient answer by the post commander. So do they have, do, did they think in terms of what we think of now as, well, there's a child missing, what do we do? You know, I, I don't think it even crossed their mind at that point in time. You know, if you think about what was done when Jacob Wetterling disappeared, we now know that there are certain things you need to, you know, you need to look for, you need to check. You don't, they were thinking she was just hurt someplace and annoyed that she was, you know, distracted and not coming home. So um, when they finally did get the chance to talk to the police, they were assigned a policewoman to assist them. And they told, um, her name was uh, Miss Fogarty. They told Miss Fogarty that Mary Jane liked hotels and lunchrooms and, so she went and Miss Fogarty went and checked out the St. Paul Hotel, St. Francis Hotel. She went to the bus depot, um, went to department stores just to see if anybody had seen her and nobody had. So she was assigned to check for her outside of the, the outside the of the post. Okay. Yes. Yes. 
And at this point, you know, Mr. Massey is still you know, upset that not more is being done. Um, he has, this is Saturday, so it's been a full week since she's been gone. Um, he is upset that, you know, they needed more help. And this policewoman is, is checking, you know, the lobby of a hotel looking to see if she's standing there did not seem to be a real useful task for... Not very helpful. Not very helpful. <laughs> he did not think it was very helpful. So he, um, he, he went back to the police and asked for more help. And then he was told that the commandant had to ask for it directly, that he couldn't just ask for it. Got to follow protocol. Well, yeah. And so um, arrangements are made. So this is, again, one week after she's been gone, the arrangements are made for two detectives to come the following morning. And the following morning, the two detectives arrive and they do what they do in all the cop shows. They start at the beginning. They go to her room. You know, they look at her room. Where would she have gone? How would she, which way would she have walked? And then they followed that path. And... Then it's like, well, now she's at the pool. She's last seen standing right here. Where could she have gone? Well, she liked the wildflowers in the ravine. Let's walk down to the ravine. At which point the father had told the mother, well, why don't you check with the person who saw her here? Make sure that was the right time, that it was 645. So it's just the detectives and the father who are walking down the ravine. And as they're walking down, down the ravine, there is a big blue barrel off to the side. And so they went and looked at that. There's some trampled grass around the barrel. They went to look at that and inside is a body. And um, Mr. Massey at that point says, that's her, that's her, that's her. And the police, you know, at that point, it becomes part of their normal protocol where they pull him aside, they send for a coroner, they, you know, basically, you know, cordon off the crime scene. And then, then, then remove her. After an autopsy, they discovered that, yes, it is indeed her. They officially identified her with um, dental records, um, although she was wearing the clothes that they had last seen her in. The autopsy report um, has a really detailed description of the decomposition. Um, I'll spare you that. <laughs> um, but there was a ligature around the neck and... There were, her underwear was tied around her neck and the knot was still still on. Then there was fractures of several membranes or several um, vertebrae, but they determined that those were caused when they were she was already dead and they were stuffing her into the barrel. And the cause of death was strangulation. And so there was not much else that they could determine because of the de decomposition was so great. Again, most of it was determined from the dental records. Um, the official identification was the dental records. And the unofficial was the clothing she was wearing. In the knot that was around her neck, um, where some grass was kind of tied into that, and that only grew in a few places on the post. So that seems like, oh, that's a really good clue. Well. Unfortunately, the few places that it grew were not really enough to rule out anything or anybody or identify anybody. And the drill drum that she had been stuffed into, in the ravine there were um, a number of drums like that that had just been kind of shoved down at various times. So it wasn't that unusual that it was there. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't where it was supposed to be stored, but it was just kind of like trash jumped over the ravine. There were, there were some uh, official uh, trash points up and down the ravine behind the uh, upper post. 
So it may have come from one of those trash places. Yeah. So had, had they checked any of those during their original search? Had they just gone by those those barrels down there? Well, the question was as well, if they found her a week on the, on the Sunday, the week and the day later, were the barrels there earlier? And there are, they went back and asked the FBI when they came in later, the FBI went back and asked people who had searched, well, did you see that? Yeah, so-and-so went over and checked that. Yeah, we checked that out. Well, their thought was that they probably saw them. They were looking for a girl. They weren't looking for a body. They weren't looking for a body hidden. And so, the, you know, with hindsight, yeah, you should have checked that. So they probably just said they did. It's, again, unclear how long a body could stay there in the 100, although it remains slightly cooler. But every day the temperatures were over 100 degrees that week. It's brutal hot in Minnesota in July. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, from Wednesday to Sunday, nobody really had looked there. So, you know, the smell that was when you got right close to the barrel would not have, may not have been there. Yeah. How did that barrel get there? It's, don't know. That's one of the unanswered questions. So, and then again, like I said, the St. Paul police had a protocol and because it was on federal property, the FBI got involved at that point in time. And so there was a little bit of coordination. They were both working it for a couple days, but then the FBI took over. On the more human side, they held a service for her at the post chapel. The FBI attended to see if, you know, if there was any unusual characters or unusual reactions. Um, there was, it was attended by about 200 to 250 people, most of which were women from the post. And a number of Massey's superior officers attended, and several of his, um, several men from his company. But the FBI agent Bellamy is his name. Um, he attended and didn't see anything unusual in in the people that were there. So um, he even said that Sergeant Massey and his wife exhibited normal emotion so far as could be observed. So who who did they question? How how did they go about? investigating this there were so many so many men to talk to i mean how did they they focus this investigation it must have been difficult it was well um after her body was found was the first time they went to and thought of this as a you know, a murder investigation before that it was really missing person. was missing person and not even it was a runaway you know yeah. it was just it was discounted before that so if they had thought of it in these terms earlier, they probably would have done, I would assume, different things or been more specific. But at that point, the FBI files um, have the St. Paul police files in them. And the St. Paul police files have, um, they indicate they think it's the father. But then they also indicate, because he was interviewed multiple times, they integrate the timeline of where he was. He couldn't have. You know, there was no time. He was never alone after the after she was missing. He was then again never alone. So um, did something happen right at 6.30 when she was seen by others? You know, he went down to look for her. But again, he was never, never alone. Um, so it, it didn't make any sense, and especially not to me, and certainly not to Golda, who at several points wrote into the FBI, why are, you, why are you focusing on us? Why aren't you looking for the man who did this? And um, William and, 
And Golda provided lists of men that he had had trouble with. Maybe somebody was trying to get back at him because he's a commanding uh, non-commissioned officer. You don't always like your sergeant. Um, they looked at that. They looked at troublemakers who had been at the post in the CMTC because it's recurring in the summertime. Um, they looked at that. They looked at mostly people that had some sort of interaction with the family. And most of the names were provided by Golda and and William. They occasionally would get a tip that said so-and-so is kind of strange. But for the most part, they really didn't look at the people on the post. You know, in terms of I need to interview all this, all these people and find a suspect. It, it just wasn't like that. There were in, in investigations for other murders. And whenever there was an investigation for a murder of a woman, they would ask that suspect if if he knew anything about Mary Jane, we had, there was one guy that um, actually admitted to killing Mary Jane. He just didn't have the where or how or who, right? And he was not in Minnesota at the time. He was out in Maine. So, um, yeah, even though he, he confessed, it, that was not a resolution to the, to the problem. Um, was he asked about that or did he read about it and volunteer the confession? He was asked. So again, anytime there was a, somebody was up for an attack or a murder of a woman in in Minnesota, they would ask about Mary Jane. So um, and there are a couple of newspaper accounts that indicated one guy confessed to killing this girl that he met um, at a coat closet and asked about Mary Jane. It's like, well, why are you asking about that? Because I just said I did this, and there, you know, it was just. It was just standard because it was still unsolved for years afterward. And of course, life at the post, it's the army. It goes on. Um, William, who's with the 3rd Infantry Regiment, which is part of the Old Guard, in 1941 was transferred down to Alabama. And so he and Golda went down to Alabama because their daughter was buried up here at Fort Snelling National Cemetery. But you go, you go where the army tells you to you go. You go where the army tells you to go. And down in Alabama, Golda was still very, very active with volunteer work. When she was up here in Minnesota, she was very active in the Girl Scouts, as well as the Red Cross and the Officers' Wives Clubs. When she got down to Alabama, she was still very active in all three, which I just don't understand. I don't know how you can be active in a, in a Girl Scouts when your daughter is gone but like I said I just don't understand it and then they were in Alabama for about a year and then the third infantry got moved to California and um, Presidio and so William wrote out his career at, in California at Presidio and retired as a major in 1955 and died of a heart attack about a month later <laughs> mm. um, in his obituary it does not mention Mary Jane and I'm sure that Golda would have been the one to write his obituary. She was still alive at that time. I also had checked with the church that he had belonged to, um, just to see if I could find more information, if they knew anything about it, if she had, you know, the daughter. And according to their records, they knew he had a wife, Golda, but she was not a member of the church, just he was. And when Golda died in 1971, there was no obituary. And both of them are now buried 
at Fort Snelling National Cemetery. Not in the same section as Mary Jane, but close enough. What, what kind of a person was Mary Jane? Could you talk about her personality, what she looked like? Um, Mary Jane was, at the time of her death, was 14. She was very tall, 5'9", and very slight, about 115 pounds. Um, she was she was considered very friendly, but and, and quiet, um, and perhaps a little immature. Most of her friends were younger than she was, and she liked little simple things. She liked you know going on the walk to look at the wildflowers. She liked wandering the post with her dog. Somebody in the in the FBI files talked about well you know was she interested in boys and did she flirt and. The response was pretty much no, <laughs> no, she was not, <laughs> which kind of annoyed me because like it's her fault she got murdered. But um, uh, she had a dog that she loved and doted on, and he would follow her all over the post. And like I said, her, her friends just described her as quiet and, and nice. So, and then the FBI continued to search, and this would be you know, a case that was reopened whenever something new came up. Um, most of the time it came up because Golda wrote and said, hey, what are you doing about this? <laughs> um, did you check out so-and-so? And, -so? and um, so the case itself, like I said, was open and closed, open and closed multiple times over the years, but there was just never anything that they, they, could, they could point um, to having done, nobody they could point to having done this. They had one letter that came after William had died, and it's written in childlike script. But this is, you know, like I said, in the fifties, so would have been For anybody who would have been a child afterwards. would have been an adult at that point. Um, but it was written in very childlike script, saying, you know, it was. William Massey that did this and I won't come forward because I'm afraid because he'll kill me too. And um, the FBI received this letter, but they discounted it. There was nothing on it. There's no fingerprints. There was no, nothing distinctive with the paper that, that they could find out where it came from. And so they discounted it just because it didn't add anything to the case. And so the case has been, uh, you know, it's closed because, but not resolved is what it is right now. And in the FBI files, you can see they, they too looked at the dam and came to the same conclusions as the St. Paul police and had to come to, which is that he couldn't have done it. Number one, the timeline just didn't fit. The behaviors that they thought were suspicious, the biggest driver, the reason why they thought the dad did it is because he didn't go to the police until Friday. Well, he went to his reporting officer. He, he did what he was supposed to do. He could not go to the police until he had permission to do that. That would have violated protocol. Yes. Hmm. So the one thing that they had, you know, that gave them the sense that he was the one that did this was the one thing that he didn't have any choice about. <laughs> so, so, so to this day, still, um, still open. Um, I, requested the, um, the files under the Freedom of Information Act, and it took them about a, a year to release them. They have some redactions in them. They interviewed several of her classmates, and so all the interviews with the classmates, all the names are redacted. 
but that's the only thing that has been redacted in this whole thing. Um, How big was the file? Uh, this binder right here. That binder right there, yeah. So oh. about three inches worth. Okay. I was going to say for our, our listening audience. <laughs> for the listening audience, it's about three inches worth, yes. Interesting. So um, there's a lot of repetition. There's a, I received a report that said this. Here's the report that said this. Here's the summary of the report that said this. And so um, not all of it is very useful information. But still, it, it was thorough. They did look. They did try. But it just never went anywhere. That letter is very odd. Yes. You have to wonder. Obviously, someone still suspected the father. But you almost have to wonder if, you know, you hear about people who have have killed someone who still kind of want to stay connected to the case in some way, even years later? Oh, that's a different viewpoint. I hadn't thought of it that way. I was thinking more in terms of somebody had tried to hurt them. And you can hurt them by, you know, killing their daughter. But you can hurt them by also, you know, throwing suspicion on the father. So this seemed to me, again, the father is dead at this point. This seemed to me a very deliberate jab at Golda. But yeah, being connected to the case, somehow being connected to the case in some way. It's too bad we didn't have fingerprints or something. Right. Yeah. So, hmm. so I would like to ask you what your theories are on what happened here. Obviously, it's all pure, pure speculation. speculation. Yes. yes. But just after having studied this, you know more about this than any living person right now, I would assume. I mean, this is something... Probably. <laughs> so what do you think happened to her? Um, when we do a tour about Mary Jane or the interwar years at Fort Snelling, I always ask this at the end. And I'm surprised at all the different viewpoints that still come up. But I have, the basic thing is that I just don't think it could be one person. You know, it's killing her and stuffing her into the barrel that, to me, it just seems like, you know, you need a two-person job. One may have killed her. Somebody else may have, you know, helped stuff her into the barrel. You're moving, moving a barrel that's 115 pounds of dead weight inside of it plus the barrel itself. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. That would require. And it's like, well, was the barrel right there? Had it been sitting up in this place I think that she was in the barrel. I think she died right away. I think the barrel was, um, or she was placed in the barrel right away. But then I think the barrel was moved. Because they talked about the trampled grass. Yes. And after a week, that grass would have sprung up and sprouted up. Yeah. If it had been trampled a week earlier. Yeah. And on Wednesday was the last time that large groups of people had searched and very specifically the ravine. They had searched that area. So I think that she was somewhere else, probably in a barrel, and then moved to the ravine um, after Wednesday. What do you speculate was the motive? Sexual assault. Yeah. Someone saw an opportunity to assault a young lady and took advantage of that. Now, the autopsy does not conclude that she was sexually assaulted, but... Um, that was because she was too um, decomposed. They could not make a determination. They couldn't rule it out either. Yeah, they couldn't rule it out. They just 
they, they, they couldn't they couldn't prove it put it that way so and that was a, a working theory in the FBI files as well hmm. so you offer tours of this occasionally we do um, originally we were just doing tours of Fort Snelly Upper Post in general, and then we could do a nine-hour tour, and nobody wants to come to that. So, <laughs> so we broke it down into segments, and because Mary Jane was so integral to all parts of the interwar years, we actually called this, you know, even though it was a Mary Jane Massey murder mystery tour, it was really about the interwar years. You know, she's born at a time when this is a thriving, great community. You know, community. Um, there's all these social events going on in, with the Twin Cities. It's the, as Todd mentioned earlier, the cream of the locations you can be stationed. And so all the things that made the post unique and interesting were things she participated in. So although the movie theater is gone right now, she, the night before she disappeared, had been in the movie theater. You know, so she would have she would have gone to the PX. She would have gone to you know stood at the artillery fields to watch the parades, uh, military parades. She would have you know listened to the band. She would have attended their dances. She would have all of the things that were part of the 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 social aspects of Fort Snelling during the interwar years were part, things that she participated in. And so when we give the tour. It's the interwar years, and then we tell the story of Mary Jane throughout. And how can people contact you regarding these tours? Uh, if you want to see what tours we have going on, uh, if you're on Facebook, look us up under Fort Snelling Foundation, and we have an events page there. And we'll, we haven't uh, got uh, tours posted yet for this year, but we will. I always say this is the last Mary Jane tour, and it's never the last Mary Jane tour. <laughs> it is such a popular tour that we, we we pretty much end up doing a tour every year. Yeah, yeah. So what is so, the what is the Fort Snelling Foundation? Uh, that is the uh, Facebook side of our uh, of our uh, little Fort Snelling support group called the Fort Snelling Historical Society, and uh, what we do is we raise funds to help with the. Um, restoration and uh, programming at uh, Fort Snelling. So we uh, provide them funds to buy uniforms or get materials they need to do their interpretation. And, and we uh, collect and tell the stories about Fort Snelling, like Mary Jane's story. You alluded to this earlier, but there have been some really amazing things happening uh, with, with these buildings in recent years, in the last 10, 20 years. There is just a ton of activity going on down there. VA has uh, wrapped up their uh, rehabilitation of the stables to turn into apartments. They're working on more buildings to turn into more offices because the VA is critically short of office space. So they need some new offices so they can take people out of their existing buildings so they can remodel those buildings. Uh, there's not enough space to do so. Uh, plus, the uh, Boy Scouts are finally done with their new headquarters on the Upper Post. Uh, the Historic Fort is redoing their campus. So they've got uh, some of the money from the legislature that they need to uh, redo their campus. They got $15 million out of the $30 million they need. So they're going to get started on that uh, probably this year. And in addition to all that, uh, there is a development company called Dominium that's uh, rolling into the upper post, and they're going to turn a lot of the buildings into uh, uh, housing. So lots of activity going on this year. We might do uh, 
do some tours that just uh, highlight all the different activities going on. Have you thought about putting together like a self-guided walking tour? Uh, we have. We thought we'd do a like a cell phone tour. We haven't got around to building one yet, but uh, so many things, so many projects to work on. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for Thank having you. us. It's been fun.